Hi, my name is Chris, and the Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 14, 18 through 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Larissa, and the New Testament reading is found in Hebrews 7, 1 to 3, and 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But, but resembling the, king, the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Without question, the less important person is blessed by the more important person. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Anna. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading, found in Luke sixteen ten through 13. Whoever is faithful with little is also faithful with much. The one who is dishonest with little is also dishonest with much. If you haven't been faithful in worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches? If you haven't been faithful with someone else's property, who will give you your own? No household servant can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be loyal to the one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise be to God. Let's remain standing as we pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our eyes so that we could see Jesus today. And we ask you to open our ears so that we would hear your word, your voice speaking to us today. And we ask you to open our hearts so that we would be soft and humble and ready to receive your word, that the entrance of your word would bring life and light, and it would change us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. What is it about the intoxication of victory that makes people go nuts? I'm not a college football guy, but I know college football started yesterday, and my social media feed was blowing up with people's predictions already about something about a tide rolling or something like that. I don't know. I don't really care about that. All I know is that when the Broncos won the Super Bowl in February, I was jumping around like a crazy person. I didn't vandalize or destroy property. I didn't go drive around the neighborhood honking my horn, anything like that. But I did go out the next day to Dick's Sporting Goods and buy a hoodie, a championship hoodie, because... One, I was excited, and two, who knows when it's going to happen again. <laughs> but there's something about victory. I mean, it's not like we're Steeler fans, Ron. You get once every three years or something, you know. But, um, but <laughs> there's something about victory that makes us kind of act crazy. I mean, maybe uh, it's a team that, you know, the city goes into riots after they win, or maybe it's an Olympic swimmer who vandalizes a bathroom. But there's something about victory that makes us kind of lose our minds. And in a way, the test of victory is almost sometimes a greater test than the test of defeat. Another way to put it is that the, the test of success 
can, can reveal more than the test of hardship. And so the question that I want us to wrestle with this morning is how do you handle the blessing of victory? How do you handle the blessing of victory? Maybe some of you think that Christianity has nothing to say to the strong, that Christianity only has something to say to the weak. Years ago, when my parents were still living in Malaysia, there was a group of students from mainland China that had come to do one year of their college education in Malaysia. And these were students that had come from well-to-do families. One of them was a general's son. I mean, just a high, sort of powerful future up-and-coming leaders in China. And they'd come to Malaysia to do a year uh, of college there. And my mom was teaching um, English at this college. And so a lot of the students were in her class. And so as a result, she she was able to get them to come to the church that my dad was pastoring. And I remember one summer when I was in college, I went back to, to go and visit my, uh, my parents when they were living there, obviously, and, and I met many of these students. And I discovered that for many of them, being at my parents' church was their first exposure to Christians who were actually relatively successful in life. That their only association of Christians in China, at least for these students, was that it was a peasant religion. That Christianity had something to say if you were down and out and poor, but if you were rich and prosperous and successful, then you didn't need Jesus and you didn't need Christianity. And I wonder if some of that mentality is even a little bit alive in us. That surely when we're grieving, when we're at funerals, when we're lost, when we're enduring hardship, then we think, help, Lord, everybody prays in those moments. Everybody prays when they need help. Even people who don't believe in God pray when they need help. When, I, I know this because of airplane turbulence, you know. All of a sudden, everybody believes. Like, oh, good, dear God. Like, oh, you, you're a believer? Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. Right. But who prays when life is going well? Who worships when you're experiencing success and prosperity? When I was in college, I had a guy who lived next door to me who was very willing to... Um, to endure hardship for the Lord. In fact, he, he had the ultra simple sort of life. He had no possessions. He wore like the same outfit every day. And it was just like he, he was sort of saintly in the, way he was, in the way that he was so detached from material goods. And I said, I said, bro, you know, I have a feeling that God's test for you is not to give it all up and become a missionary, but God's test for you might be to make you like super successful in business, you know. And he just laughed at me, but there was horror in his eyes. <laughs> He's like, I don't know if I really want that. Because we're not sure. What do I do with that? What do I do when we do experience victory or quote-unquote success? We're in a series here through the book of Genesis, particularly on the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis. And in week one, we set the stage by saying this is not just the story of Abraham. It's really the story of Israel in miniature but it's not just the story of Israel, it's the story of us, the story of the human race in the way that we have been called and in the way that we stray and in the way that God rescues us. And so at the heart of it, it's really the story of grace. It's really the story of God putting his world back together again. That's why Abraham was chosen, is because God was going to do something remarkable to put this fragmented world back together again. And we followed Abraham's high moments, and we followed his low moments. And now here we are in chapter 14. This is the first instance here of a dramatic victory for Abraham. 
Verse 8, then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with <clears throat> Shedarleomar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, and the other kings of Gondor. Okay, and then... <laughs> It goes down, verse 11, it says, Then the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way, and they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. This is the beginning. This is a continuing building foreshadowing of Lot's troubles. You remember last week, Abram gave Lot the choice. says, which land do you want? And, and then it says, Lot chose the land, which would eventually be destroyed. Dun, 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 right? Here in chapter 14, there's more ominous backdrop music. As we see, Lot is getting kidnapped. He's getting captured. What's going to happen? Verse 13, then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner, these were allies of Abram, and when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan, and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. And then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Now, if you've been following the story, we've, no, we, we've come to see a few things about Abram. One, God chose him. Two, he was so scared for his own life that he sold out his wife to Pharaoh. Three, he seemed to recover from that, went back to the altar where it all began, became this exceedingly generous, open-handed guy. But now in chapter 14, we get a portrait of Abram that's sort of like Braveheart, you know? This is, this is like, wait, wait, What? So first he was scared, then he was kind and generous, now he's like a warrior? Like who is this guy? We're getting a picture of a different side maybe of this Abram and this Abram's story. And so Abram, this is his first experience of victory, first sign of God's dramatic blessing on him. Yes, he was rescued out of Egypt, but that was through plagues and that was in spite of of Abram's fear. Now we see some God rescuing through Abram's strength, through his own courage. There are some times it seems that God saves us in spite of ourselves, and there are other times where it seems that God is working through you. If you've ever had a great day at the office, if you've ever come out of a presentation or a sales call, if you've ever been catching the flight home from a business trip and you're like, yes, nailed it. That's this feeling. That's Abram saying, got it, killed it, <laughs> literally. <laughs> Other problems emerge. But Abram's saying, I, I, so this, is, this is working, this is going right. So what does he do with the blessing that's happening in his life? Verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. We heard this in our reading. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. 
This is the first time in the Bible that we begin to see this custom of giving away a tenth. You might know it by the word tithe, giving a tithe. Now, right away, if you've been in church or if you've watched late-night Christian TV, your high-alert signals are going off. Like, oh, no, tithing, money. This is going to be some sort of charlatan message about how if I do this, then God will do this. And I have to say to you that in seven years of preaching weekly, I've never preached a message specifically on tithing. One of the reasons for that is because I went to school in Tulsa, and we had some crazy chapel speakers who gave a very twisted representation on tithing. And so if you're scared of this subject, I want to say to you, I'm right there with you. And if you've seen this subject be exploited and manipulated and abused, I want to say to you, I understand. I get it. I, I heard a guy one time say to a class, he said, God is like a Coke machine. He literally said that. And he says, you put in a dollar in the Coke machine, don't you expect a Coke? So why do you think that when you give to God, you don't expect to get from God? And I thought, I don't know, because he's not a Coke machine, you know? (laughs) But I, I, I kept quiet, which was itself a miracle. Another time a guy came to chapel to speak, and he said that, that, Money just sort of came to him out of nowhere. And that if we would just appreciate his anointing, quote unquote, that money would come to us too. And so he had the whole group of students and some begrudging faculty chanting, Money cometh to me now! With hand motions. I'm not joking. Worse yet, this guy's still out there. Lord have mercy. Another guy told a story of how he wanted a private jet, for kingdom reasons, of course. And so he decided to name this private jet Willie, in his mind. And then he said he would just call it out, Willie, come to me. And he said, I would just keep giving money to God, and every time I gave, I knew I was going to get the jet. This is absurd, people. This is messed up. This is heretical. This is wrong. This is the gospel inverted on its head. It's it's, it's insidious, and it's, it's, it's possibly demonic, because it has nothing to do with Jesus. Okay, some of you agree. Others <laughs> of you are like, about that jet. <laughs> so I understand the nervousness to say, what is this thing? So let's, let's unpack a few things. What is tithing? First of all, tithing literally means giving a tenth, but it can refer to a symbolic percentage. The magic is not in the math, okay? The magic is not in the math. It's a symbolic percentage that's meant to represent something. Secondly, this is something you'll almost never hear in church. Tithing was an old and widespread custom. The Bible didn't make up tithing, okay? So you might hear a preacher say, God developed the institution. He did not. This was an ancient custom. So let's take some of that out of this, okay? Tithing was an old and widespread custom in the ancient Orient. This was around. But something about this practice changes with Abram, and that's the reason the storyteller in Genesis includes it. 
Something about this custom changes in the way Abram does it. It's a little bit different. By the way, this is the, the whole story of Israel is very much like this. Finding existing stories and customs and reshaping them around their revelation of who Yahweh is. Missionaries do this very same thing when they go and contextualize. They find existing myths and stories. They say, well, let me see what that's really a hint of, right? So it's more important to pay attention to how Abram changes this custom than it is to just say tithe, okay? Who is Melchizedek? Hebrews kind of gives us a little bit of a, of a picture of this. The author of the book of Hebrews says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. The writer of the Hebrews picks up on this very detail of the story. And I, I, I want to say this because in teaching through a text, in teaching through books of the Bible, you're going to come up against stories that you'd rather skip, right? But when you see the New Testament echoing a detail of an Old Testament story, you're like, well, so that's not just detail. The writer of the Hebrews says, no, he gave him a tenth of everything he had. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, talking about Melchizedek, and then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He's without father, mother, genealogy, blah, blah, blah. Verse 7, without question, the less important person is blessed by the most important person. The writer of the Hebrews wants us to see a couple things from this story, and one of them is that Melchizedek, as mysterious as he is, is somehow representative of a greater figure, a greater person. Abraham is the lesser. Now, this is radical because to a Jew, there's no one greater than Abraham. Remember that whole altercation Jesus has in John's gospel when he says one greater than Abraham is here? And they're like, oh, no, you didn't. The writer of the Hebrews is saying Melchizedek was one that was greater than Abraham, and that's why he blesses him. Who is Melchizedek? There's so much we could say, but the the one thing we will say is that Melchizedek is a type and a shadow of Christ. Somehow he's a picture of Christ, the bread, the wine, the priestly blessing. And then Abraham's response in giving a tenth. This is how Abram changed the ancient practice of tithing. In the ancient world, it was a common custom to give a tenth. But you gave it to kings as a way of paying tribute, and you gave it to sanctuaries, places of refuge. If this was a place of refuge for you, then you say, okay, I'm going to give a tenth here because after all, this is taking care of me. This is a place of refuge to kings and to places of refuge. What Abraham does that's totally different is he gives it to a priest. He gives it to a priest, and his giving is connected to this priestly blessing. I think it's a picture to us that there is a kind of giving that is an act of worship. There is a kind of giving that is an act of worship. We would say it this way. Giving a symbolic percentage of our money is an act of worship. Giving a symbolic percentage of our money is an act of worship. A way of saying, God, you are the source. Jesus, you are the great high priest. The blessing comes from you And so I give this as an act of worship, as a response of worship. Now, in our day, this is very difficult because we don't have a category for this. We have Kickstarter, crowdfunding, you know, GoFundMe. We have donations. 
we have investments, we have a tip that's 20%, but we don't have the concept of giving in a way that is actually worship. How can money leave my hands and actually become an act of worship? I can make an investment, I can make a donation, I can show support for someone's project or, 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 or um, cause, I can give a tip, but what is worshipful giving? That's, that's something we don't have a category for. That's something we don't fully get. And I, I, I know we don't fully get this because of the rampant, rampant fear of churches losing 501c3 status. There's this, there's this fear of, like, well, hey, listen, if we lose our tax-deductible status, nobody's going to give. Listen, there are other concerns about losing that, but one of them is not that we would lose the principle of worshipful giving. Because you don't give to get a tax donation, tax write-off, tax deduction. You give because it's an act of worship. There's a kind of giving that is an act of worship. But you know what? Something else happens. When we give a symbolic percentage of our money as an act of worship, we actually rebuke the lie of self-reliance. We rebuke the lie of self-reliance. You see, the fallenness in us will always lead us back to this place that says, I did that. I did that. You see this in Deuteronomy. Before they they enter the land, God says to them, look, don't... Be, be careful once you get all these houses and once you do all this stuff, you're going to say, Deuteronomy 8, you're going to say, I myself have gotten me this wealth. And God says, no, no, remember, remember. Giving a symbolic percentage of our money as an act of worship is a way of remembering who really is the source. It's a way of remembering, yeah, I worked, yes, this was, I was participating in this, but ultimately the blessing and the victory came from God. A couple years ago, Relevant Magazine asked a bunch of um, authors and people some questions about, about what, what were some challenges with ministry to a, 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 this current generation. And Lauren Winner is an associate professor at Duke Divinity, and, and unprovoked, she wasn't asked the question on tithing, she, just, she was asked the question, what do you think is one of the biggest Um, things that this generation needs to learn, what's missing. And she says, without flinching, she says, I know of nothing that will transform someone's spiritual life more abruptly than beginning to tithe. Now, this is not prosperity gospel talking. This is not her saying, if you do this, you're going to get... This is her saying, if you want to learn about dependence on God, tithe. If you want to learn, if you want to have treasure in heaven, tithe. If you want to have any hope of having solidarity with the poor tithe. See, whenever we hear bizarre teaching, we're tempted to kind of say, oh, this whole thing is stupid, and it's gone. But do you know, the right response to a a subject that has been abused is to find the proper use of it, not to abandon it altogether. Well, it's all garbage. Say, well, what is the heart of this? And I think Lauren Winter gets pretty darn close to the heart of this, saying, when you give, you all of a sudden disrupt the lie. You rebuke the lie of self-reliance and you begin to depend on God. You begin to have solidarity with the poor. You begin to put your treasure into a kingdom that, that goes beyond our life here and now. When we give a symbolic percentage of our money as an act of worship, we confront the false gods of our day. 
It's interesting because later on in the story, you'll see the king of Sodom coming to Abram and saying, hey, look, let's make a deal, you know, just give me this and I'll take, and Abram says, look, I don't want anything from you. And I can't help but think because of how Sodom will represent this destruction, the city that is destroyed, the city that has determined to live apart from and against God. Sodom is a prototype, if you will, of the world and the systems of the world. And so Abram is saying, no, look, look, my, we're, we're sort of implicated here because we were all in this battle together, but you don't get my allegiance. We're implicated in the systems of the world, but we need not be entangled in the systems of the world. Tithing is a way to say, yeah, I'm implicated. I make money. I buy. I sell. The commerce. It's, 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 we can be thoughtful consumers. We can be conscientious consumers. No matter how thoughtful we are, we will still, at the end of the day, be implicated in the world systems. We will be. Martin Luther once said, if you don't want to be implicated in sin, Stay in your bed, right? To, to, to get out of your house every morning is a way of saying, look, uh, somehow we're going to be implicated. But Abram found out that even though you are implicated with the king of Sodom, you need not pay tribute to the king of Sodom. Even though you are implicated with the systems of the world, you need not be entangled with the systems of the world. So giving a symbolic percentage of your money is a way to say to the false gods, I'm not yours. I'm not yours. Yeah, I participate in this, but I do not worship capitalism. I do not worship consumerism. I am not giving myself as a slave to these systems. No. Yes, I may be unwillingly complicit, but I am not enslaved. I am not entangled. And there's nothing that frees us from that more powerfully than to say the pre-decision decision. It says, you know what? No matter what happens, this is, this is gone. This percentage is gone from my life. Why? Because it's a symbolic percentage that says, I'm free. I'm free of it. I'm not going to live under the cloud of this. I'm not going to live under the shadow of this. I am free. The stickiest question that often emerges with a percentage giving is, well, well, where and to whom? And, and I know there are several respected ways to understand this. Because the truth is, there's not a straight line from New Testament church to us. Our day looks very different. Because of different organizations, missionaries, different institutions, there's several things that are part of our sort of constellation of kingdom communities. And it looks different than it did in the book of Acts. That's also something probably no pastor has ever told you or admitted. But I'm trying to be honest with you this morning. So it is, there are different ways of interpreting this. But I would like to suggest to you that there is a case to be made for saying that you bring worshipful giving to the house of worship. That you bring worshipful giving to the house of worship. So one of the reasons this story is included in Genesis is a couple books later in Numbers you'll see Israel being instructed to bring their tithe to the priests. To the priests. And the, the, the priests get the tenth. And then that is allocated for the worship of the Lord and for all these other duties. You say, well, that's Old Testament. Fair enough. In the New Testament, what you see is in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, 
these men and women selling their property and bringing the proceeds of it to the feet of the apostles. It's an act of worship saying, look, nobody asked us to do this. Nobody told us we had to do this, but we're doing it and we're laying it at the feet of the apostles because we're bringing it as worship to the house of worship. And so they bring it to the leaders of the church. Paul will write in 1 Timothy, he, or in Galatians, he, he will write, let us do good to everyone, but especially to those in the household of faith. There's something about this principle of saying, yes, it's great. Be generous, be charitable with everyone, but take care of those that you gather within the household of faith. Bring the offering of worship to the house of worship. Because we believe that, we take it very seriously at New Life, what it means to be a steward of people's worshipful giving. Being a steward of people's worshipful giving is the kind of thing we tremble about because one day we'll have to give an account for it. So we've tried to do everything that we can to submit to the highest standards of accountability. There's an organization called the ECFA, the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. There are maybe 350,000 churches in America. There are only 200 churches that are members of the ECFA. For whatever reasons, one of the reasons could be that there's a few hoops to jump through to attain certification from the ECFA. New Life is one of those churches. That has, and the reason we do it is because we believe in being as accountable as we can be. So we take it seriously. But my invitation to us this morning is not to give because of that. Not to give because of that. In fact, don't give because the church needs your money. Give because God wants your heart. Sometimes people say, well, Glenn, I mean, what are, what are the needs? I mean, you're in high school. I mean, what, do you, what do you need? I mean, should... I'm like, man, I, I, I'm not looking for your donations. But I want to facilitate your worship. I'm not looking for your tips and your fundraising skills. But I'm here to encourage the, your worship. Don't give because the church needs your money. Give because God wants your heart. He wants you to be free of this. And finally, don't give to get. Don't be like the people that I heard in Tulsa. Don't give to get. Give because you've already been blessed. Give because you've already been blessed. So I don't know. I don't, I don't have much. I mean, I, I make you know, this, this much. You know. I'll tell you, and people older than me can tell you, it doesn't get easier. So you develop patterns and habits now. You determine now that this will not have a foothold in you. That it will never put its claws and talons in your heart and say, come on, but you could have that much more. And you could spend that much more. Decide now to say, you know what? It might be 10 bucks, but I'm going to give a symbolic percentage as an act of worship. And I'm going to give it because I've already been blessed. I'm going to give it because I want the Lord to have my heart. But the beauty of all of this Hebrews 7, its real point about Melchizedek is that Jesus is the true and better guarantor of, a, of the new covenant. Everything Melchizedek hinted at being and doing, Jesus is and did fully and completely. Think of this. Jesus is the great high priest who brings to us bread and wine that are not just bread and wine, but his very body and blood. Jesus is the great high priest who blesses us 
Not just by the name of God Most High, but as God Most High. As the Son of God. Jesus is the priest that says, your life is now blessed. It may be hard, it may be difficult, it may be painful, but you belong to a different story now. You belong to the story of God putting His world back together again. And I know there are some of you, it's like you're not in the position, you're actually not Abram, you're Lot in this story. You're the one who needs someone to rescue you because of circumstances, a, a sickness or, a, or, 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 or a debt or some kind of financial issues. This is not, you might be listening to this thing, I, I don't know, how, I, maybe I can't give anything. That's okay. Sometimes it's okay to be Lot in the story. Sometimes it's okay to say, I can't give. I'm not in the position to give right now. I actually need someone to rescue me. Great. Let's do that. That's what, that's what we're here for. Right? Others of you, you're here because you're saying, well, I've, I've never thought about money as a way, as a form of worship. I've, I've just never thought about that. You know, money is the most tangible form of power we have. It's much more difficult to give other forms of power away, but money should be easy. Because it's the most tangible form of power. And we can say, God, this is yours. I am yours. Others of you, you thought about the symbolic percentage, but, um, but you're like, I don't, I don't know. We're in church? Why should I give to the church? But maybe the challenge this morning is that this has become a place of refuge for you. This has become your refuge, your household of faith. You're like, oh, maybe I should invest my heart and my worship back in to the place that is my house of worship, my place of refuge. Others of you, you're like, dude, I am so there. I've been tithing six, six years old. Gave my first nickel in church. I went with grandma. But the way you think about it is just check the box. Like, yeah, I'm done. No, it's good. Now I'll just spend the rest of the money however I want. You've missed the heart of it. This is not an excuse to check the box. This is an invitation to bring your whole life before God in worship via this symbolic act. Does that make sense? So you might be in all kinds of different places. You might be in need of rescue. You might be in need of thinking differently about money. You might be in need of thinking differently about your local church. You might be in need of thinking differently about the rest of the percentage. But all of this is an invitation to worship, which means I can't persuade you, which means no decision should be made today because, like, oh, yeah, sure, okay. It should only happen when you've prayerfully discerned. So, Lord, what do I need to do differently about our finances. And then you say, okay, I'm going to do that. Because when you prayerfully discern a decision, it becomes an act of worship. 